Podcastle, episode 369, for June 23rd, 2015. The Chimney Borer and the Tanner, by Thorea Dyer, rated R. Welcome to Podcastle. I'm Graham Dunlop, your co-editor and host, and today we're going to get straight into the story. No preamble. We're very proud to present a Podcastle original, The Chimney Borer and the Tanner, by Thorea Dyer. Thorea is an Aurealis and Dittmar award-winning Sydney-based science fiction and fantasy writer. Her short story collection, Asymmetry, and time-travel pirate novella, The Company Articles of Edward Teach are available from 12th Planet Press, while the first book in her Titan's Forest Fantasy Trilogy is forthcoming from Tor. Thorea is an archer and a lapsed veterinarian. Follow her on Twitter at Thorea Dyer or peruse ThoreaDyer.com. Stories read to you by Pamela Payne. Pamela is a Los Angeles writer and voice actor, Her noir, horror, vintage crime and drama can be found at vintagevice.com. Her most recent work was included in Exiles, an Outsider Anthology. She's available to hire for audiobook narrating and all things spoken words. Please check the show notes for details. But now, come away from all that washing for a while so you can enjoy the story. The Chimney Borer and the Tanner by Thorea Dyer Hoping I'd steal their souls instead of hers, my birth mother hid me in a chimney borer's home. I never did harm any of that happy family. They are peacefully dead of old age by now. That's something, at least, to be proud of. Even if I have so far failed to fulfill my pledge to skin a god. It took a decade, far too long, for me to learn that Orfro wasn't really my father. If golden jaguars could sometimes throw black cubs in a litter, I reasoned, why couldn't yellow-haired people make black-haired babies? I hoped I'd get to look like Orfro as I grew older. I was mesmerized by the white blonde curls, not just on his head, but across his shoulders and down his back. When he bent over to bore chimneys, the curls could be seen continuing on, disappearing between his buttocks into the loose-woven trousers he wore. You won't look like him when you're older, my sister Etta said kindly. He's a man. Little girls grow up to be women, see? She spread her arms in patient demonstration. Her long braid, the color of mangoes, was coiled above her ears, and her new breasts, also reminiscent of mangoes, presented themselves at the level of my eyes. But I did not grow up to look like Etta, either. Etta, where did I come from? Am I really like a tuber left in the oven too long? Did Mother have me too late? Is that why my hair's burnt black? Ask Mother, Etta suggested which was an easy escape for her, because I had never been able to speak louder than a whisper, and Mother dwelled in the stone-lined laundry where fires roared 
and steam obscured people's faces. Old people shout because they can't hear. Orfro's parents and his wife's filled that hot and sweaty laundry, not just with their bandy-legged, sack-covered bodies, but with screeched conversation that made the walls echo like flocks of bats leaving a hollow. Speak up, Ranar, Mother used to bellow, before she gave up trying to help me overcome the shyness that kept my eyes downcast and my voice quiet. Then it was, Let go of my apron, Ranar. I've got work to do. I could have written her a letter, if only I could write and she could read. I begged Etta to ask her for me, but all Etta was interested in doing was balancing great woven baskets of bleached linen on her head while she crossed over bridges to the tanner's house, swaying her hips when she thought one of the dull boys might be watching. I never would have danced for that glum headman's son, Dulbaleb, but Etta did. It was left to me to shadow Orfra one day as he went to work, whistling with his wood auger over his shoulder. He threw his voice, somehow, so that he could be at once merry and safe from demons that might come after a merry man with a whistle. The village of Dole housed around five hundred souls, some fifty families living in ten bridge-connected rings, that is, in the hollowed-out trunks of ten of the great trees. Their roots were so far below in darkness that we could not see them, and their leaves were so thick and high that when I lay on my back and stared directly upwards, the distant, minuscule diamonds of light that dropped through looked like I imagined those travelers' tales called stars. Our hollowed-out homes were riddled with chimneys for air and for the dim gray light, but when creatures nested in them, Orfro and his core drills were called to clear them out without killing them. Message birds left carved sticks in the baskets on his sill, telling him where to go. If the chimney's bark overhang was damaged and the rain was running in, Orfro's gimlets came in handy to reroute the water. When a family needed a new room entirely, either to house a new generation or because an older person had passed away and their room had become a sealed-in tomb, Orfro's greatest treasure, his hand-span-wide wood auger, was needed. I walked with him around the walkway that ringed the tree. He was wanted two trees over, which meant asking the headman's family to send a rope bridge over the gap. Ranar, he said good-naturedly, it's no use asking me to introduce you to the mother of those dull boys. Their work is dangerous. Half of them will be gone before you even come of age. I don't want to marry a dull boy, I whispered furiously. I'm not like Etta. No? What do you like, then? I'm not like Etta. His eyes widened when he saw tears sliding down my cheeks and he stopped to squeeze my shoulder with the hand not balancing the auger. Like me, is it? Is that why you build those little houses out of twigs instead of tending to the laundry? You want to be a chimney borer instead of a washerwoman? I want to know why I don't look like Etta, I said in my smallest voice. 
As to that, I don't know. You fell from the sky into your mama's basket of washing, a gift from the forest no woman would attempt to return. He answered immediately and with relief. Now run home or run ahead and give my instructions to whatever dual boy is on the ballista, so long as we keep moving, since my auger's not made of feathers and my shoulder's not made of stone. I ran past him to the cantilevered house built a body length or two higher than the rest of the ring, the house of the headman of Dool. It had a low landing platform, lit by lanterns, for the bridges fired from the other trees to rest on, and a high platform, proudly bearing three enormous balustrae, for firing this tree's own bridges across the void, or for firing bolts through the hearts of demons. No permanent bridges were allowed, but sometimes a demon would chance upon a rope bridge and follow it across. My papa is going to the third, I told the yawning young man, whose long body was draped leopard-like over the long stalk of the middle ballista. What's that? I can't hear you. The chimney bar Arfro. I felt my cheeks flush looking anywhere but into the handsome face of the dull boy. He's going to the third ring. Why didn't you say so? Pass me the bolt for the bridge. I carried the heavy bolt from where it sat under a dew cover, atop the coiled ropes and lightweight planks of the bridge. The dull boy dropped it into the trough and began cinching it back with the windlass built into the stock the muscles in his bare arms cording and sweat springing to his smooth brow. The bridge was ready to loose by the time Orfro ambled up to the platform. Warning for three, hollered the boy, and one of his brothers or cousins on the wide balcony of the house rattled the bell that cautioned the people of Ring Three. They would sound their own bell if the landing platform wasn't clear. No reply could be heard only the falling water and birdsong of early morning in the forest. With a sharp snap, the powerful wooden engine sent the bolt flying, the bridge smoothly unreeling after it. Return safely, the boy bade Orfro, as the chimney bore set foot on the bridge. Safe stay, Orfro replied. I watched him disappear into the gloom before scurrying back to the laundry. There I found Etta in a state because her long braid had gotten caught in the well bucket crank. Mother had been forced to hack it off with a pair of cloth shears. My hair, my sister wailed, holding the braid like it was a dead bird she'd found. My beautiful hair. It will grow back, Mother shouted over the boiling cauldrons and crackling fires. Now take that basket to the tanner like I told you, or you'll catch a whipping. I knew Etta wouldn't want those dual boys to see her with no hair. I'll take it, Etta, I whispered to her. The tanner lived in the third ring, the same place where Orfro had gone with his auger. The bridges were already set. The laundry was heavy, but I could rest along the way. Etta bit her lip in anguished uncertainty. But if you drop it, Ranner... If it falls, I won't let it fall. She kissed me on both cheeks. I took the basket of laundry. The handles were so far apart I could barely grasp them. 
Every ten or twelve steps, I had to set the burden down on my own toes to recover my breath. My toes were crushed, but it was better than trying to set the basket to one side and perhaps losing it over the edge of the pathway or bridge. Where's Etta? asked the boy who had fired the bridge from the house of Dole. She's not well. What's that? I can hardly hear you. He leapt to his feet and moved closer. I said she's not feeling well. Let me carry that basket for you across the bridge. Then will you tell Etta that Dol Balab sends his hopes for her quick recovery? I nodded mutely. Picking my way carefully behind him across the treacherous planks, I crossed to ring two. There, another descendant of the House of Dool, who bade me send Dolbeleb's regards, took up the basket and for the same reason, making Dolbelab scowl. Dolbeleb and I crossed the second bridge in silence together. He had a heavier brow than his cousin, broader shoulders and a scar at the corner of his mouth. At ring three, I had barely carried the laundry ten steps before my arms were tired again. I set the basket down in an alcove formed by a fold in the bark, feeling somewhat furtive, for children under twelve were not generally permitted to leave their home ring. I looked up to find the grizzle-haired Tanner with her fists on her broad hips, peering at me with her one good eye. I had heard from Etta what she looked like, all in black, wandering with her stinking sack, collecting bird droppings. But this was the first time I'd seen her. Is that my laundry? she whispered. I was taken aback. Why are you whispering? I whispered. Why are you? I always have. I can't help it. No, she said wryly in a more normal voice. I don't suppose you can. In the sound of those words, I sensed a vibration, felt a thrill that coaxed my arm hairs to stand up and my throat to seize shut. They named you Ranar, didn't they? As good as any. I dared not name you when I birthed you. I recognized your gift from the very first cry, and I knew I must put you away from me to keep us both safe but I couldn't have a rival recognizing you either. Speak now, I return your voice to you. You birthed me? I cried, and my voice came out so loudly and with such a ring of power that I clapped my hands to my ears and sat down hard. Yes, Ranar, the tanner said. I am your mother. I was a slave called Ader when my teacher found me and when I was freed, I became Ederada. She taught me to live alone and to love no one, for a frightened soul leaps to the one it loves at first death. She saved me from slavery, but I did not love her. And as for you, you must not love me. I gazed into her one good eye, seeing something of the shape and hue of my own. She stank, and her nose was crooked. I don't. I won't. Come home with me now. You are never to see those others again. Adara Da gave me a dark room to sleep in. 
It would have been the first room that had ever been mine alone, except that I shared it with a white skeleton in a priceless silk robe. My mother's tomb, the tanner grunted, holding the lantern higher, her eye rolling around the splintered dry walls. Nobody will look for you here, even if they come. I wasn't afraid of old bones. I was afraid of the strange resonance I felt in my own bones whenever I spoke or whenever a Derrida did. There's something inside me, teacher a Derrida, I whispered, because whispering did not cause the vibration. I will show you how to use it, she whispered back at me. Once you have shown, you can obey. When Etta came, her head hidden under a bright scarf to collect the basket and the dirty sheets. She asked the tanner where her sister was. I listened through a crack in the door to the tomb as a Derrida disavowed all knowledge of me. She declared she had found the basket abandoned on the walkway with her clean laundry inside. Etta seemed upset, but only for that month and the month after that. In the third month, she whistled as she carried the basket on her head, and I could not know if she had forgotten me or was simply relieved to have hair long enough to braid again. The whistle made me think wistfully of Orfro. Each time visitors came, I hid in the tomb, and I went back to work as soon as they were gone. By now, the tanner's assortment of foul smells belonged to me, the urine of nursing babies for treating the thinnest fish leathers and the urine of young men to coax the hair from bear hides, dung for softening and relaxing the skins, bark from the tree that we lived in, oils, brains, rotting scraps of flesh. You have left huge lumps of fat on this skin and ruined it, Adarada pointed out. I will make you sleep in the urine vat if you do it again. I didn't do it again. After one year of whispering while working with the assorted skins that Adarada procured, she sat with me in the tomb and ordered me to sing. I obeyed her, and as my voice rose in volume, my bones shuddered harder until I burst to my feet like a boiled pot with clouds of steam coming out of me. When I fell silent, the world felt different. Close your eyes, Adarada said and when I closed my eyes, I could still see her somehow. I sensed her bones, their position in darkness, as though no flesh lay between. What am I? I whispered. Adarada put her hands on my face, and I felt it soften and change like wax. I was too afraid of her to pull away. You are my daughter, born a sorceress, and you will whisper no more. Open your eyes. Go outside. Walk around the ring. Then come back and tell me what you have discovered. I went outside to the wooden platform of the ring that was Adarada's doorstep. The smell of earth, of wind, of fresh flowers was stunning to me after a year in the tannery. But I knew that wasn't what my mother and teacher had meant. Good morning, Adarada, a strange man said to me in passing, and I put a trembling hand to my face, even though I had no need now to wonder what had been done to it.
I felt the man's bones, even as he moved out of sight around the trunk of the great tree. I felt the bones of two women and the two babes in their arms, even before they turned the corner and greeted me, as the man had done. Around the great trunk, I drifted as though in a dream, feeling the long spines of snakes, the tiny hollow ribcages of birds, and the marrow-filled thigh bones of my fellow humans. When I returned to Adarada, she waited with a messenger bird in a cage and an old, brittle bone made into a flute. I hesitated when my mother held it out. To my newly wakened senses, it held a drowsy, dangerous magic all of its own. Take it, she said curtly. Blow into the mouthpiece. I blew into it very softly and gently, and the bird in the cage dropped from perch to seed-scattered floor. Is it dead? I whispered. No, Adarada replied, only sleeping. The flute is a relic of a god who lived before the founding of the forest. Names change. He is called Atwith now. Atwith was the death god. Even the daughter of a chimney bore knew that much. But I didn't understand how a god could have bones. I didn't understand why a Derrida was showing it to me. Is this how you hunt bear and python, mother? With this bone flute? She smiled. The flute is a learning tool. Soon you too will have the power to put creatures into deep hibernation just by using your voice, to sing them to sleep. To what end? You hate the tannery. You hate being a tanner. She raised one eyebrow at me, and I lowered my eyes, frightened my observations had offended her. I hate the gods more, my little cuckoo, she said evenly. One day I will defeat them with their own power. One day I will tan Atwis hide. Womanhood, when it arrived, was not as wonderful as Etta had led me to expect. Eat these herbs, Adarada insisted. The herbs don't stop the pain, mother. Did I say they were for the pain? They are to help replace the blood you've lost. I will bring you a sloth's liver. I don't want a sloth's liver, I whispered, complaining to my dead grandmother's bones after Adarada was safely gone. Half a month after my bleeding finished, on a night when the last sliver of the old moon dangled delicate strings of silver light between the trees, I left the baiting bench with dung still on my hands. The sound of my mother dragging some heavy animal's body was coming from the skinning room. She locked the door behind her as I entered the corridor. Don't go in there, she said, breathless with exertion. That is for after. After what? After you've finished tonight's tasks. Leave what you've been doing. Go and scrub yourself clean. Draw well water. Use my scented oils. Comb your hair. Soak your feet. I complied with the previously unheard-of request to use my mother's private washing room and her store of precious distillates to try to remove the odors of our trade. When I'd done the best that I could, I went to stand before Adarada, 
who was muttering to herself and shooting me strange, frenzied glances. Then, without further ado, she began to sing, working magic without flute or wand. As before, fright kept me from questioning her molding of my face. She pulled my shoulders up, away from the floor, and they stayed there. I was taller, my figure felt fuller, and a long braid was pinned in a golden crown above my ears. Etta, I whispered, but the body I now borrowed was a wider-hipped, bigger-breasted and flatter-footed version of the sister I hadn't seen for four years. Go to her house, Adarada said, pressing the bone flute into my hands. She told me the way to the house where my once sister was now a mother. Put her to sleep without letting her see you. Hide her sleeping body under the bed. Then wait in the bed for her husband, Dol Beleb. He will make a true woman of you. How will he do that, mother? Just lie as he would have you lie. Do not cry. Do not let him light a lantern. And do not let him speak, lest he speak his wife's name and wake her before morning. I tried to obey my mother. I felt at his bones before I was within spitting distance of her hallowed-out home. I made her fall asleep, even as I sensed the smaller, spongier set of bones in the cradle. The baby, too, had to be put into a deeper slumber. I stopped to touch the child's petal-soft cheeks and wonder what her name was. Then I dragged, rolled, and pushed Etta under her marital bed with what I hoped was slightly more grace than a Derrida had shown to the dead animal in the skinning room. Sorry, Et. I started to whisper before cutting myself off, horrified. Forget about dull Beleb. I had almost said Etta's name aloud myself and woken her at once. There could be no more mistakes. I snuffed the wick of the lantern and crept under the mosquito net under the moss-stuffed mattress. Dol Beleb came home late, after the last bridge of the evening had been recalled and recoiled. Lying utterly still, I listened to him peel off his robes in the dark, wash his face, armpits, and groin with rose water, and crawl under the net himself, damp and naked. He kissed my hair and turned me onto my belly. I lay as he would have me lie. I did not cry. When he rolled off of me, he would have spoken, but my fingers found his lips instantly, even without light. I could feel his bones, after all. And when I touched his mouth, I felt the scar there in the corner that I had glimpsed during the bridge crossing the day my mother claimed me. The contact only silenced him for a moment. You know I like to look at you, he said, curling my hand in his. Why did you? Hush, my love, I whispered. I wondered what it would be like to say those words and mean them. To love. To forgive one who had made me feel like I'd had a hole bored between my legs by Orfro's biggest auger. I didn't hate the tannery, but maybe that was because I had to love something first in order to learn how to hate. I felt empty.
Dolbeleb fell asleep with his hand between my thighs, as though staunching the wound he had made. I used the bone flute to make sure he wouldn't wake till morning. I even managed to heave Etta up onto the bed with him. Then I returned to the tannery. Is it done? Aderada asked. As you wished, mother. Shockingly, she embraced me. Her stench was made worse by my relative cleanliness. Ranar, my poor Ranar. But there is one more thing you must endure tonight. Come into the skinning room. The skinning room, a plain curved space with a lantern shelf, a high air shaft to the outside, and a drain in the blood-blackened floor, was made brighter than I'd ever seen it by a series of seven lanterns. The bench had been pushed to one side, and covering the drain, supine and slumbering, was something fanged and four-footed that rippled at the edge of vision. Only by its shadow could I see its massive size. What is it, mother? I kept the bitterness from my voice. Would she ask me to couple with this creature next? And if she did, would I refuse? It's a demon, my darling. It's the only thing that can save you now. I didn't intend to love you. I sent you away to keep it from happening. But you have been so good, clever, quick, and obedient. Now it's too late. I love you, and although you hide it well, you must love me. This is the only way I can protect you. She said those same seven sentences over and over as she squatted by the demon with her best butcher's blade. She opened it up as it slept, from chin to prepuce, without spilling a drop of blood. Muscle was finely separated from muscle, tendon from cartilage, until the main long bones of the living creature were exposed. Lie down in it, my little cuckoo, she said. Take off your clothes, align your bones with her bones. You will become one with her, as I became one with the demon inside of me. And then no one will be able to sever your soul from your body and wear your flesh as their own, not even me. For the second time that night, I shucked my robes and lay as another would have me lie. Aderada began to sing, and my bones began to writhe. So did the bones of the sleeping demon. For the second time, though I suffered, I did not cry. I don't understand, Mother. Aderada swam into my blurry vision. She gripped the same herb she had given me half a month ago in one wizened, white-knuckled fist. Eat these herbs. I'd rather have something for the pain, mother. They're for the babe that's growing in you, Ranar. I did feel something there. I thought it was the demon. Very well, give me the herbs. Just don't give me any more sloth's liver. I chewed the leaves without expression. Now that you're safe from me, in case I should die, I'm going on a journey, Ranar. You have seen the great power of the bone that brings deep, death-like sleep. I am going to find another bone, one with a different purpose. Not the province of the god of death? No, this bone is in the temple of the bringer of new life, 
the birth goddess. It bestows youth. How can I stay here alone if no one is to know I am here? I will lend you my face again, my little cuckoo. You will trap animals with the flute, butcher them for meat, make leather, trade, eat. Don't forget the herbs. You have learned enough. You can fool them. They will believe you are me. Will you come back before my baby is born? Yes, oh yes, of course. I hid the sudden twinge I felt. If Adara Da was present for my baby's birth, she would want to take it away, to hide it with another family as she had hidden me. I didn't fully understand why, and she would not explain. All I had to puzzle on were the mad mutterings she had made while merging me with the demon. I gave birth alone in my grandmother's tomb. My mother had not returned. I did not hide my new, pink, squalling daughter in the basket of a passing laundress. I gave her a name. Kerik. It was a good name for a tree-dweller. The same sounds forward and backwards, so that she could move up or down as she chose. I gave her the soft, spotted furs of a pack of needle-teeth to sleep on. And I loved her. Easily. Immediately. I forgave one who made me feel like I'd had a hole bored between my legs by Orfro's biggest auger. The night that my false face melted away, I knew my mother had been killed. I sang to comfort Kirik, who found my new, true features unfamiliar. Only later, when she slept, did I cry to mourn Adarada. And it was because she had loved me not because I had loved her. I knew what love was now, and the compelling wrench I felt to protect Kirik was nothing like the distant fondness and respect I'd had for the tanner. Her plan had worked, after all. In the morning, there was a pounding on the door. It penetrated my fogged brain eventually. My eyes felt like they were gummed together with glue. The pounding came again. Kirik made unsettled sounds in her cradle. Stumbling out of the netting around my bed, I half-leaned, half-fell against the door. I lifted the latch. A fat man with narrow eyes and curiously ornate dress stood in studded sandals on the platform outside. Behind him, holding their metal weapons unsheathed, bristled a dozen brown-clad soldiers. Their shins and forearms were covered. I've never seen warriors so encumbered before. Are you the tanner, Adira Da? the man demanded. Yes, I said, recalling too late that I had shed the disguise of my mother's face. The man plunged a knife into my chest. I could only stare at him, my eyes on a level with his. The pain struck a moment after he did. I shrank from it wanting to see Carrick, wanting to save her from being put to the knife next. And in the shrinking, I realized I was ripping away from the very body where the knife was lodged. That body fell. I watched for a moment with ghostly eyes as it crumpled at the feet of the man and his twelve soldiers. I watched them enter the house and search methodically for something. 
Then I was watching them from a nest of spotted furs. I was watching them from Kirik's eyes. I felt her tiny soul floating free away from me into the ether, where my soul should have gone. She was taking my place, an unwilling sacrifice, and all because of my instinct to cling to her. No! I tried to shriek, but my newborn's throat would not form the word. There's a babe in here, one of the soldiers said. Should I get rid of it? No, the fat man answered absently, overturning the kitchen table. We serve the bringer of new life. Give it to one of the neighbors, then drive them all off. If we can't find the bone, we'll burn the place, so none other of these filthy witches can find it or use it. As you wish. At last, I understood what Adarada had meant when she'd said, A frightened soul leaps to the one it loves at first death. My first death had come and gone. My first murder, too. And as the soldiers carried my bundled body away, I discovered that I hated them. They set fire to the heart of the home, the room where Adarada had thought no one would look for me. My mother's tomb, she had said. She had thought it a safe hiding place. Now my first body burned along with all the dwellings and workplaces of the third ring. Ranar's body burned. The body that had lain with Dol Beleb and labored to bring forth little Kirik. You serve the bringer of new life, I thought furiously at the brown-clad soldiers. One day, I will defeat you with your own power. One day, I will tan your goddess's hide. For now, I could do nothing but thrash and soil my wrappings. A young man took charge of me as we crossed one of the bridges. He was not Kirik's father, but his angry, impotent expression revealed the hawkish lineage of the House of Dool. Look what you've done he muttered, setting me down on the hard wood of the platform and exposing my kicking legs to the air. What in the gods' names am I supposed to do with that? He wrinkled his nose, perhaps because of the stench of my befoulment, perhaps because of something else. Other smells came on the acrid wind, oils, brains, burning scraps of flesh. I could have told him what to do with it. The urine of nursing babes was for treating the thinnest fish leathers. The urine of young men was to coax the hair from bear hides. Dung was for softening and relaxing the skins. Adarada had not told me how to tan the skin of a god, but I was determined that I would learn. And welcome back. Thorea had this to say about the story. The Chimney Bore and the Tanner is the backstory for a complex character who will be featuring in my debut novel, with the same magical rainforest setting as the forthcoming trilogy. So thank you, Podcastle, and I hope the audience is suitably intrigued. 
And we'd like to know if you're intrigued as well. Come tell us what you thought about the story in the forums. Give us some feedback. Speaking of feedback, this week we'll look at the comments for episode 359, The Litigatrix by Ken Liu. It was read by the ever-excellent Ania Lay. Folks on the forum generally liked this one. Spare Inch said, You can't beat a good old-fashioned mystery from time to time. Devoted135 said, Loved following along with the mystery as it unfolded, and I thought the pacing was done quite well. I did figure out the gist of what the fire sprites were communicating long before she did, but that's okay. Fun. And Duango said, Of course the practicality of doing this whole thing with the ice is, well, questionable. A lot of effort would have to be put in and a lot of variables to consider beyond just the freezing point of water. So I'm calling suspension of disbelief on this one. Or we ask Mythbusters to give this one a try to see if it's possible to pull off. Can't go much worse than the experiment where they tried to create a death ray from the shields of Roman invaders. Well, folks, that was our show for this week. On behalf of everyone at Podcastle, our forum moderators Talia and Ossicat, Peter Wood, audio engineer extraordinaire, our tireless slushes Arun Jiwa, Sarah Goldman, Melissa Hoflich, and Jennifer Albert. Your editors Rachel K. Jones and myself, thank you for stopping by and listening to this week's story. We'll be back next week with another one. Until then, this is Graham Dunlop reminding you that a frightened soul leaps to the one it loves at first death. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated. It's delivered under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it all you like, but don't change it or sell it. Podcastle could not be without the generosity of our donors. Thank you. Did you know that you can support us from as little as $2 a month? A regular donation of just $2 helps immediately. Or make a one-time donation of whatever amount you wish. Or help spread the word of Podcastle to your friends. Write about us on your blog or Facebook or Twitter or Tumblr or Instagram or Ello or wherever you social media ties. Leaving a review in iTunes also helps us out. C.S. Lewis said, There might be things more terrible even than losing someone you love by death.